0: Good morning church and I'm glad again to be with you. My name is Will and, uh, and I'm excited to, to talk through this message with you. We're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 2. Okay, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, you can go ahead and do that. Um, and I'll tell you while, while you're turning there, I, I'm pretty good at navigating around Texas. I feel like at this point in my life, I'm basically just from Texas. Okay, I grew up in, I was born in Houston, I grew up outside of Houston, I went to school in the Brazos Valley, and then I lived in Austin and Fort Worth and Dallas, so I mean, like, <clears throat> West Texas is a special, maybe, uh, part of the map that, that I haven't experienced as much, okay, I know there's a lot of riches out there somewhere, um, most of them are underneath the ground, and in, like, Wichita Falls and Midland and the people, right, so, um, and, uh, but I'm pretty good at navigating around Texas. Even if I get a little bit off course, like one time I looked up and I was like, wait, I'm in Giddings. Um, I, why, why am I in Giddings on my way to Houston or somewhere? And it's in, really, it's pretty easy to course correct uh, when you're driving around Texas. You can just hop on a different, different FM road and cut off, get, get between one of the major highways and find your way uh, where you're going my first job out of college actually involved a decent amount of navigating one of my functions was was actually to drive around this politician and uh, my job was not particularly political it was actually almost entirely logistical which wasn't great news for the politician because that's like the detail components of that are not my strong suit and they weren't his but the reason the reason why I didn't get fired from that job is cuz he, he wasn't very detail-oriented either, so he didn't realize all the details I was missing. And so uh, he, I would be like 45 minutes late to something, and he would be an hour and 45 minutes late, and so he would never know. And uh, so it was all good for me. Um, but a decent amount of my job early on before he got his own security detail was just driving him around, which was a strange first job, but it, you know, it paid the bills, kind of. And um, one night, I got off of work and headed from Austin to College Station where Natalie, my my now wife, then uh, girlfriend, lived. And so I was just going to drive over to College Station and visit her. And um, and so I got off work, got on the road, and I knew that there was a storm coming. It was supposed to be colder. It was supposed to be a colder night. And, and so I knew that that was going to happen, but I, I thought, oh, I have plenty of time to get to College Station. And I was talking to a friend. I was It was like back when Bluetooth was like a newer thing, and it had like the little... I don't know, Jawbone, whatever that was called. I had like one of those Bluetooth. I I just remember that. I I had a Bluetooth thing because I was like, hands free guys, being safe, being safe, driving super fast. Okay. And so that's what I was doing. I was just cruising um, down 290 and you get on from 290, you exit 290 and you stop and turn onto highway 21. I tell you all that because it, it, it got cold that night sooner than I expected. And uh, I hit the brakes. I started to slow down when I exited Highway 290 in my truck. Uh, I, I drove a four-door truck, and it just started sliding uh, down down the feeder towards this intersection. And it wasn't sliding super fast, but it was sliding too fast to do what I initially thought about doing, which was just jump out of the car. I thought, I'm going to jump out of this thing. I'm going to basically ghost ride my truck into an intersection. Because that, the problem, the big problem with this was that I wasn't just coming up on an intersection. I was actually in this truck. Uh, I exited. It was, there was ice, and I started to slide towards an intersection where the, the, the cross traffic did not stop. And it was not just a road, it was a highway. And so there were like semi-trucks coming down Highway 21, just huge trucks, and they were not stopping. And so I thought, am I gonna thread the needle on this deal? How am I gonna make it through this intersection and survive? And so at the same, before I didn't jump out of the truck, I actually just turned my wheel, and I started trying to turn. And just before I got to the intersection, my, my truck kind of slid off of the road into the grass, and I was trying to actually hit a light pole because I thought hitting a light pole is better than getting hit by a semi, so I'll take that. And right before I hit the light pole, right before I got into the intersection, the, the, my wheels caught on the grass, and I spun around 180, and I was just sitting there. Like My friend was actually still on the phone in my little Bluetooth, and I was like, bro, I'm going to have to call you back Uh, because my life is still flashing before my eyes, and I was just sitting there kind of like breathless, stunned, facing the opposite direction. And the thing that's very clear in that moment is that I didn't need just a, a slight course correction, right? I needed to turn all the way around. What I needed, in a sense, was this vehicular repentance. That's what I needed, and that's what I got, and it, and it probably saved my life or at least saved me from near death because the odds of me getting T-boned at that moment by some trucks coming through were pretty good. And so that's what I got was vehicular repentance, a turning around of my vehicle, and it saved my life. And that's what I want us to see in the scriptures today is that, is that we don't need an on-ramp to the gospel. The gospel doesn't actually invite us to on-ramp into it. It's not a slight course correction or an adjustment to our lives. Salvation does not come through a shift, okay? Salvation doesn't come through a shift. And the message of the New Testament, the message being preached in the book of Acts that we're going through, we're studying the book of Acts, and all throughout it you're getting these sermons. And the sermons that are being preached are not uh, in, uh, about an on-ramp into this life of following Jesus, message is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And this repentance component is not optional. The turn is not optional. Repentance is the way into following Jesus and the way of continuing following Jesus. Okay, and so the gospel of course corrections is what prevails in our day. Okay, before you think that this is sort of just a Kind of side note or an addendum to our situation, the world that we live in, the world that we live in actually would preach a gospel much more, uh, not, of, not of repentance, but of course corrections, of slight adjustments, just slight improvements to your life. And what I found interesting was this quote from a guy named William Booth. I heard a quote from a guy named William Booth recently. William Booth, you've probably never heard of him, but he started, he was founded something that you have heard of, the Salvation Army. So has anybody not heard? Kids, the Salvation Army is a pretty big organization, and they do a lot of good in the world, um, especially around Christmas time, there's people ringing bells outside of department stores. It's really the image I have in my mind. But, um, but William Booth was a pretty radical follower of Jesus, and he said this in 1912. Listen to this quote. He said, The chief danger that confronts the coming century, so he died in 1912, so the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regenerations, re- regeneration, po- politics without God, heaven without hell. That's what he said in 1912. 19- I mean, he said it before 1912. He said, when you're looking at this coming century, the chief danger that confronts it, one of them, forgiveness without repentance. Booth could see from 100 years away that relativism would mark our world. What I mean is that truth, what what is right and wrong is relative to where you are, how you see things, how you want things to be. It absolutizes yourself it makes you the absolute that is the whether you whether you are kind of aware of that whether you have lenses for that that's how the world is speaking to you. That's the message that's coming in. And, and, and so uh, my, my daughter recently, I told you she loves listening to Pocahontas. There's one, one song we don't let her listen to on Pocahontas because they say some really harsh things about, it's two groups of people saying harsh things about each other. And she's like, why can't we just listen to it? I love savages. And I'm like, "We're not going to listen to savages, okay? Um, and, uh, and she's like, why not? She's like, because those words, that message is actually making its way somewhere down into your heart in ways you don't even know it. And that's what's happening with this relativistic world that we live in, is it's absolutizing. It's it, Kids, this is for you. The, the world is trying to tell you over and over again, make you the center of everything. What you say goes. I called it recently a choose-your-own-truth adventure. The scriptures tell a different message. That's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. Okay, Luke He wrote at the beginning of Acts, he he talks about the Gospel of Luke, and he calls that what Jesus began to do and teach. And Acts, functionally, is what Jesus continues to do and teach. Okay, Jesus is not finished. Actually, all throughout this passage, if you trace it, you can see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Trinity, all that work. And so we we call it the Acts of the Apostles. It should really be the Acts of God the Father um, through the Son and the power of the Spirit. (laughs) That's who it's the Acts of. And uh, last week, we looked at the miracle of Pentecost. There was a miraculous event on this day of this feast of Pentecost, okay, which is like 50 days after Easter, if you're trying to just place it. And so uh, that was when God the Spirit brought the energy that launched the movement of God through Jesus into action. The movement that you are a part of, if you're a Christian in this room, if you're a believer in Jesus, the Spirit of God catalyzed that movement that reached your life on that day in Pentecost. That was the miracle of Pentecost. And then uh, Peter has, be- has began- begun answering the question, what does this mean? Okay. And, uh, and, and really what, he's, what he begins to say is that the Spirit of God prepared, did a miracle to prepare the people for a miracle. He did a miracle of having God's greatness declared in all these different languages so that there could be a miracle of receiving this message. An outpouring of the Spirit that would lead people to call upon the name of the Lord, Peter tells them. And so we're looking at the message of Pentecost this week. The message which is that repentance is the path into following Jesus and the path of continuing following Jesus. Okay, so Acts 2 verse 36 if you want to get there. Verse 36 we'll read that. It says let all the house of Israel. Now this is this is the summary of his whole message. He's coming. This is a summary statement of all that he's just said to these all these people who gathered gathered together because they were like, "What's happening? And I'm hearing in my language somebody who's Galilean. That guy does not know how to speak my language, and yet somehow he's speaking to me about God." Why can I hear this? And Peter says this, a summary of, of his whole message to them. He says, let the house, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the, and the, the first point for you, the first anchor I want to put for you in this message is, is it, this, this Pentecostal message that Peter gives, this sermon, there's something for us to do with this. And the first thing to do with it is to realize something. You gotta realize something. If you're gonna enter into this is basically a, a, a short picture of how to become a Christian, okay? And so even if you want to know what it looks like to become a Christian, you gotta first realize something. And and that realize that word just means to make real, okay? We always say, I realized that. What that what does that mean? Is eyes that suffix on realize that means to make, okay? To make real. Something becomes real real to you. And two things need to become real to these people, Peter thinks. Two things need to become real to you in this moment. You need to realize two things. One, who Jesus is, and two, how they are connected to his crucifixion. Who Jesus is and then functionally where they stand with him right now. They need to realize that. That needs to become real to them who Jesus is and where they stand with him. And so who's he say that he is? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. He's saying this should be locked down in your minds and hearts, no questions asked, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Two titles he gives him. Lord he connects back in when he was just what he's just coming out of is talking about Psalm 110 and how when When David, uh, King David, wrote Psalm one ten, he was talking about Jesus. Peter said, "You know who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus." The Lord said to my Lord, so he's saying, "God said to God," and Jesus is that God, the Lord. So he's saying. He's Lord and Christ. Christ is the Greek word, uh, that's a word that translates Messiah, okay? And so he, he is the Lord, the ruler, and the rescuer. He's both of these things. Know for certain that God has made him both. Now, when I read that, you read that and you're like, God made him these things. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus previously was not these things? And now God said, well, let me just decide, let me pick a guy. You know what? Jesus is a really nice guy. He seems to be doing it pretty well. I'll make him Lord in Christ. Is that what he means? Not at all. It means he established him. He wants them to know for certain that God the Father has made it clear and certain, has established, has in a sense coronated. He, Jesus has now ascended and is seated with the Father. So now Jesus has been established as both Lord and Christ. This is a cemented reality in the heavens that this is who Jesus is. If there's any question in your heart and minds today, go back and read this passage. What Peter says is that we can know for certain that Jesus was raised from the dead. You know how he says that? He's like, we all saw him. We all saw him. He's raised from the dead. He got raised from the dead because death couldn't hold him, because the Father said that death can't touch him. He's coming up from the grave because he's Lord in Christ. So wherever that's missing in your soul, maybe that puzzle piece has just kind of gotten a little bit loose in your soul of who Jesus is. He is Lord and Christ of your life. You are in his domain of the universe. He's Lord and Christ of you. Now... Uh, the second thing is, how are they related to him, and how, what role did they play in his crucifixion? And he says, that same Jesus who's Lord in Christ, what did he say? This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, the word crucify, I think, can become pretty familiar to our hearts in church settings. But don't, don't glaze over what he is saying. This Jesus that you murdered... This Jesus that you stuck nails through his hands into a cross until he died. This Jesus that you caused to bleed out on a cross. This Jesus who was dead and had a spear shoved into his side to make sure of it. This Jesus whom you killed. And so not only did these people who were in attendance that Jesus is speaking to, he said not only did you not recognize the king when he was standing in front of you, like this this uh this epic um kind of the the, the the most cosmic um undercover boss moment of all time. Right? You've seen that show Undercover Boss? It's always like tragic for the person who's really like A jerk to the boss or they are breaking all the company protocols to the boss and you're like this is going to be awkward for them this is the most uncomfortable moment ever because this is the most cosmic undercover boss moment expose ever here is the king he's right in front of you and not only were you disrespectful to him not only did you not receive him not only did you not recognize him for who he is but you killed him you put him on a cross And this is the second time. So this is, again, the summary. Peter's coming. He's bringing this whole sermon to a close. And here's the, here's the message. God's made him Lord in Christ, and you killed him. And it's the second time he said that. He said that earlier on. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did it. Second time he's told them that. Second time he's bringing them face to face with this very uncomfortable, this very devastating reality that you killed the king of glory. And so why does he bring it up again? Why doesn't he just, hey, I told you once, you know, he's bringing bringing it up again because this tension, the spirit working through Peter is creating a tension in their souls. Jesus is the resurrected king of the universe. They are guilty of the crime of the ages. Both of these nailed down. Tension held. They killed the king of glory. Now, you might be thinking, and you're where you're at, right in your seats, 2020, you know, uh, a long time later, you might be thinking, oh man, that would really, that stinks to be them. It stinks to be them, right? Glad I didn't do that. You ever see somebody make a huge mistake and you just think to yourself, glad that wasn't me. Let's get lunch, you know, like move on. Peter, interestingly, what he, who is he talking to? Look back at the verse. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ, that you crucified him. Now, did all of the house of Israel crucify Jesus? Were they all there on that day? In fact, he says it was done through the hands of lawless men. They didn't actually even put him on the cross. And for sure this, this cannot be the same group of people that was there earlier This is a a group of people that's come from all over the world that's standing right in front of Peter, and Peter says, You crucified him. What is is he saying? To answer that, I think we need to think real close about the role we played in killing Jesus. Why did Jesus, why did Jesus need to die? What Jesus said is, I have to die. I'm doing this. And if you try to stand in my way, Peter, I'm going to push you aside because Satan wants me to not do this. Why did Jesus need to die? Jesus didn't pull out some cash and kind of like pay, for a, like pay off the authorities on our behalf. He didn't do that. Jesus wasn't a really good example. That wasn't all he was doing for us. It's like, hey, here's kind of how you guys should course correct and do this. No, he says, I'm going to die. Why did he need to die? The scriptures tells us he died for the sins of the world. That all the thoughts, attitudes, and actions of every human heart in this world that rebelled, rejected, distrusted God, all of the sin that entered into humanity in the Garden of Eden, when when Adam and Eve looked at God's perfect world in perfect communion with God, they said, no, I don't trust him. Let's do it our own way. And that sin entered into the hearts of human beings and has echoed out ever since into brokenness and more brokenness and more brokenness and it, there's not a human heart that it missed along the way and so for the sins of the world yes jesus died if there was no sin in the world jesus would not have gone to the cross he would not have been nailed to it he would not have had his feet nailed to it he would not have breathed his last on it So it might be more convenient to actually keep things at this very general level. Jesus died for the sins of the world. But the reality is, and listen to me on this, if our sin that put Jesus on the cross isn't personal to you, if the sin that put Jesus on the cross is not personal to you in your seat where you are, then your ability to receive the grace that came through the cross will not be personal. You will never personally know the grace of God that's coming into your life through that cross that Jesus went to unless you personally recognize your sin that put him there. Now, there is a corporate component to our sin. There is a component where we belong to a group of people. Maybe we belong to a set of people and there is sin in that group. And that's true. There is corporate sin, this maybe group-wide sin. And I saw that I saw that this week. um, I read this statistic, or a quote. It's Pew Pew Research Center unsurprisingly reports that 79% of Americans say sex between unmarried adults in a committed relationship is acceptable. That's like 8 out of 10. 83% say the same of casual sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed relationship. Now... So that's basically eight out of ten people have said that this thing that God created, God, and this is just an analog for basically whatever God, God's truth is. So God created the human body. He created sex to be a good thing. He created that inside for to be exist inside the bounds of covenant relationships so that it would bring life image bearers come from that. Okay, so this is not just about sex. This is about anything that you want to take and put at the very top level of your worship. You want to worship pleasure? through sex, okay, here, that, that's actually a lot, the route that a lot of people are taking, okay? Eight out of ten people would say that, that God doesn't, what God says about our bodies, what God says about what sex is for, we don't buy it. Distrust him. We can go ahead and cut those slides if they keep doing that. And we're about to get into some space that I think an enemy really doesn't want you to hear. So if you got distractions, then do whatever you got to do to lock in, okay? Um, and so here's the surprising part of that quote. 57% of Christians say that they agree with the first statement. 50% agree with the second statement. There's not 50% of the people outside of God's people. Half of God's church would say, yeah. Gospel, of course, corrections. And we'll kind of take what we want to and do what we want to with the rest. That's, that's a corporate brokenness. That's a corporate brokenness that exists in God's church. There's corporate brokenness that exists in our country. There's corporate brokenness that, really, that exists in all sorts of places that you have influence. I spoke with a friend of mine, he's an elder at another church in Fort Worth, and he said, man, when it comes to some of the racial tensions that exist in our world, what I want to know is, or I want to do is wherever I see brokenness, I want to lean into that. But it's not just about racial tensions. It's about any brokenness that we come across in this world, in our space, a place where we have influence, that we're going to address that. And wherever we have ownership, we repent of that. So there's brokenness all around us. And I, I want you to, I, we're going to take a minute in, soon in, in, in this service and just take a minute and stop and consider what, the, what, what brokenness there is outside, outside of us personally in, this, in groups that we belong, into, belong to in, in the church, in our country, in our state, whatever that is. But hear me on this. The brokenness is not around us primarily. It is in us primarily. There is not sin in this world that does not originate in human hearts. Do you know that? Sin is not like something that's just kind of floating around and, and, and like attacking people all over the place. Sin is not just out there. Sin is in the human heart. Satan himself whispered a lie, not into the ether, but into a heart. There's not a sin that's being done in society, in the world, between people that did not originate in a human heart. So we need to see our connection to corporate sin, but we need to see that at a personal level. But listen to this. We need to see our personal thoughts, attitudes, and actions that disbelieve, distrust, reject God, that those are the very things that led those people to crucify Jesus. God had to create a definite plan to crucify Jesus because of the sins in your heart. The foreknowledge and definite plan of God to crucify Jesus was because of the sins in our hearts, but not ours collectively, individually. And this is a horrific thing, and I'm just going to let us sit in it for just a minute. It's a horrific thing that we need to sit in because uh, I think because Jesus was a grown man when he was crucified that we miss some of the horror of this thing. For some reason, I, th- I just do, I think, I think that we miss the horror of it because he was a grown man, and every grown man we know is broken in some way. is not innocent. But here's the reality. What was happening was that the most innocent person on earth was being killed the most innocent person. Now, this becomes a lot more disturbing to me whenever I picture something a little bit different. And when I was when I was in high school I actually went to this retreat and Francis Chan taught there before before he wrote Crazy Love before everybody have ever heard of Francis Chan. So, a lot of people have heard of Francis Chan and uh, but before all that, he was speaking at this thing and he did something I'll never forget. He was talking about the cross. And what he did is he had this little bitty cross made. And what he had what he did was he had his little daughter walk up on stage, and she stood in front of it, and she put her hands out on it. And for some reason, man, whenever I start to key in on this, not just being like um, a grown man, like I understand a grown man, but the most innocent person on earth, the most innocent people I know on earth, one of them is named Emma Grace. She's a teeny little baby and you saw somebody nailing a teeny little baby to a cross, you're going to be pretty disturbed by that, right? Why would you be disturbed by that? They shouldn't be doing that to that baby, right? They shouldn't be doing that to that person. That person hasn't done anything wrong. Why are you punishing that person? Why are you hurting that person? Why are you killing that person? That person should not be killed. That was happening to Jesus. Jesus. That's what was happening to Jesus. The most innocent person on earth was being killed right in front of our eyes, and it was because of us, not because of them. Peter, who's preaching this sermon, was very familiar with this type of guilt, this type of conviction, this type of cutting to the heart. Luke 22 talks about when uh, when Jesus was being tried, Peter walks into the courtyard, sneaks into the courtyard and begins denying Jesus when people asked if they knew him. Now, I don't know Jesus. I don't know that man. I don't know him. And he starts using cuss words just to get the point across. I don't believe in that guy. I don't know that guy. And he had this moment. He had this moment and look at me where he denied him the third time and he looked over and somehow because of the makeup of the courtyard he was able to be eye to eye with Jesus in that moment. And it crushed his heart. It crushed him. Because he could look right in the eyes of the one that he was sinning against, that he was denying. And so you you and I, we don't need a gospel of course corrections, do we? Because we know You know that if Jesus caught your gaze in that moment in the midst of who you know yourself to be in your worst of moments, if he caught your eyes, then you would know. I don't need a course correction. I don't need a little adjustment, Jesus. I need you to finish what you're starting on that cross. And it needs to meet you here. Before you go any further, you got to realize who Jesus is and how you're connected to his crucifixion. Don't shortcut that. Let the scriptures tell the truth about you. Hebrews 4 says it this way, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, your heart. And no creature, you are not exempt, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He knows. He sees you. He meets you right where you are. you got to realize who he is. you got to realize the sin that exists inside of you. So I'm going to just ask you to take a moment before we finish this message. Just take a moment right where you are. There's no music playing behind this. Just take a moment and ask the Spirit to do that. Would you carve open with like a scalpel in the hands of a good doctor? Would you cut open my soul and let me know where is it that I have sinned against you? Where is there sin that's unrepentant in my life? We're going to do what Peter did now in this message, because what, if, if God's stirring something in you, if he's stirring something in you that's calling you back to him, that's a miracle, okay? Because when, Peter's, when this same message is preached, you can look at me, when, Peter pre- when this message was pre- preached by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, you know what happened? People were cut to the heart, and they killed Stephen, Peter preaches it in verse 37 and says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They also were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? They're cut to the heart. They were helpless and they needed to know what to do. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so he tells them to do two things where there is a realization of our sinfulness in our souls. We repent and be baptized. And this is an entry point into the Christian life. You want to know how you become a Christian? You repent. And then you get baptized. In Greek, that repent means to, to like have a new mind, but in Hebrew, that word really is about turning. It communicates the idea of turning. And how do we know what's going to happen when we turn? Don't you know there's some part of your heart that you realize that you, you really are messed up, you've really sinned, that you've really failed, that you really let down God? Don't you know there's some part of you, or the people around you, if you're going to preach this gospel message to people around you, to your neighbors, you've got to know when you tell them that they crucified Jesus, they're sinful, that their relationship to God, that they're at odds with God, you've got to know that they're going to, be, they're going to wonder what's going to happen when I turn. And it just made me think of, of, of this parable that Jesus tells about the posture of God, of God to, towards those who turn. And this is gonna change the way that you interact with God and it's gonna change the gospel that you preach because as you go out and preach the gospel, as you share the gospel with your kids or with your neighbors or your coworkers, when the gospel, when the spirit starts letting the gospel come out of your mouth, okay, you need to understand what the posture of God is towards those who will turn because it's gonna change the way that you understand and that you relate to God. Listen to this. This is talking about a son who basically said to his dad, you're dead to me, give me my inheritance. I'm gonna go to a far off place. I'm gonna do what I want to. It's your soul pre-gospel. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is the, his speech that he was getting ready for his dad. And he arose and came to his father. He made the turn. Now look, you've got to see this. He made the turn. He repented. That's what that means. He turned back. What happened? But while he was still a long way off, this is God's word about himself. While this young man was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. You want to know what God's heart is like towards repenters? Jesus told us, Romans two four says, don't, don't you know it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance? God's kind to repenters. And what happens when we turn, there's forgiveness there. That's what the scriptures say. For the promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. You don't earn something you receive a promise you receive a promise the promise listen to me is for you kids i sat in chairs just like this at churches and wondered is he talking to me and i'm telling you i am talking to you that the promise is for you that there's forgiveness at the turn there's forgiveness at the turn you're not paying him back for all the things you've done wrong. You're turning yourself towards the one who has paid for it all. Don't you see that? Now the last thing you do, you, you realize and then you respond in repentance and then you receive something. He said you're going to receive something. Now first, see this. The result, being baptized doesn't save you. Okay, So he says repent and be baptized and you're going to... Receive forgiveness. The baptism in that moment is not the activity that saves you. It is the response to the repentance. Look, you can see that in verse forty. He says, uh, or at verse forty-one. So those who received His word were baptized. That's what. How, that's how baptized. baptism functions in the Christian life. That's the entry point into the Christian life. So if you've never been baptized, all you're doing is missing out on this opportunity to say, hey, look at this. This is what I believe to be true. I've repented and turned back to God. That's what baptism is. It doesn't save you. It says that you're saved. It's like the ring in the parable. You remember he said, hey, I'm not even worthy, Dad. And he says, bring the best robe and put a ring on his finger. You know what that ring signified? His standing with the Father. So what baptism is, it's like, a, it's like a ring. So this ring, you know what it means? It means there's somebody on the other side of a promise who's promised their life to me. That's what baptism's like. There's somebody on the other side of a promise whose life and death, death and resurrection counts for you. When you know what's being promised to church, it's an easy trade. I'm going to trade this life for Jesus's. When you realize what's being promised, it's an easy trade. But When you know who's making the promise, you know that it's as good as done. Because he says you're going to receive the Spirit, and the Spirit is the first fruits of that promise. That's what he calls himself, the down payment. So God is not just going to stay far off from you. He's going to come and live inside of you. That's what the Spirit of God's going to do. The Spirit of God is not just going to leave you alone. He's actually going to continue helping you repent and believe in the gospel. And, and this is where I'm just going to close, is, is that... Martin Luther, he, he, said, he said this. He was the guy who really kind of kick-started the Reformation, this movement of the church back to engaging with the gospel of Jesus where it had kind of gotten off track into this very, very distorted picture of God's community. And so he kick-started that, and the first thing he said was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That's why I said repentance is the way into the Christian life and the way of continuing the Christian life. Repentance isn't just what we do at the beginning. It's what we continue to do along the way, where our hearts try to turn around constantly and look to other gods, lesser gods. We turn back. So there's, I thought about who's in the room, and we're going to end here. In this room, there might be three people, three different types of people, There might be those who are running from God today. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus and you're like, I'm not actively running, but I just don't know him. I don't want to know him. Maybe there's parts of your heart that are just running away. You're like this son in this parable with his trajectory outbound. And if that's you, then I'm just going to tell you what the Bible tells you to do, which is to repent. Turn back. Because on the other side of that is a loving Father who will forgive your sins. He's not going to hold them against you. They're paid in full. All you got to do is turn back to him. And then the second group of people are those who are who have repented. Maybe 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 God's doing a work in your life right now where you're discovering you're coming across sin and brokenness in your soul, and when you do, you are bringing that and turning from it. And if that's you, you should rejoice. Souls are getting added. At the end of this passage, 3,000 souls get added because of this message of the gospel. And souls are going to keep getting added until God says, I'm coming back and it's finished because of this message. So if you're repenting, rejoice. In the last, last group of people, there's this older brother who hangs out in this story. And he's, he sees his little brother who repents and comes back and how much his father loves him. And the older brother says, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I've been here the whole time. So some of you are maybe like that. Maybe you're like, I I trusted in Jesus a long time ago and I've just been sitting here and we see new people coming in and God loving them, but I don't feel like he really loves me. He's not doing good to me. He doesn't care about me. And I would bet in your life one of two things is happening. Either you're never good enough or other people are never good enough. I can never do good enough for others, which works its way up to, I can never do good enough for God. And then people are never doing enough for me, and that works its way up to, God is never doing enough for me. And I think for you, I just want you to turn again and hear that the promise still stands for you. The, active, the action item, the application for all of this is the same for everybody, whoever's in the room. I would drive, and, and, and Laura, you can come on up. Um, I would drive by that spot where I exited the road. I would drive by there for years and years. I would drive by Highway 290. Getting on 71, I could see it. I would drive by. You know what I saw? I saw these scars in the grass. I saw these scars in the grass, where I turned around and it saved my life. I could see him. I bet if I drove there now, I could find somewhere deep in that mud, like the dirt, dried mud, that's just my where, where my wheels cut out a groove. And so for you today, what I want you to do is look no further than some scars. Okay? That cut out a groove for your repentance, for you to Turn. Look no further than those scars. Look back to those scars. Have you forgotten those scars? Jesus said he's going to actually wear those scars for all of eternity so that you'll never forget why it is when you turned that there was forgiveness for you. You know that he says that? His resurrection body has scars in it. There's scars in the hands of our king, and those are there for you Christian. Those are there for you. Those are there for your confidence. I sat down to write this message, feeling pretty bad about myself, and I said, how am I supposed to write this message? I've got no confidence. (laughs) The Spirit of God said, good. Confidence comes through the scars of your king. They swung you out of a deadly intersection with God's justice, and now you're safe in his forgiveness. If you know that message, then go tell that message. If you've never heard that message, then receive that message. Let's sing, church.